the History Channel original podcast. It's San Francisco, 1905. An 11-year-old boy named Frank Epperson uses a stirring stick to mix a drink with water and a flavoring powder. And then young Frank accidentally leaves his mixture out on the porch overnight, with the stick still inside. That night, it gets pretty cold. Local legend says it's the same night that Stowe Lake in Golden Gate Park freezes over, something that almost never happens. In the morning, Frank returns to the porch and finds his drink, frozen with the mixing stick inside. It's a wintertime accident that will transform American summers and lead to a multi-billion dollar industry. Welcome to The Food That Built America, a podcast from the History Channel and Ozzy. I'm Sean Braswell. Frank Epperson might have discovered this tasty frozen treat when he was a child, but more than two decades would pass before he introduced the popsicle to the world. Today, two billion popsicle brand ice pops are sold every year. And from suburban yards to big city stoops to small town porches, from swimming pools to pick up basketball games to family reunions, popsicle has become synonymous with an American childhood. So Frank's family, like a lot of families, moved from San Francisco to Oakland after the 1906 earthquake. Shelby Pope is a food writer in the Bay Area. The earthquake took place the year after Frank made his discovery on the porch. More than 28,000 buildings were destroyed in the quake and resulting fire, leaving a lot of families displaced. As Frank Epperson grew up, his new hometown was growing too. And Oakland in the 1920s was a really exciting place to be. Um, This is when a lot of skyscrapers start going up in Oakland. Um, There's a huge amount of manufacturing and industry. A lot of people called Oakland at this time period the Detroit of the West um, because of all the plants and, you know, cars being built. And there was really a lot of stuff going on. And it was a very exciting time. There was amusement parks. People were out and about. It was a fun time. And Frank Epperson was what you might call a people person. He's really involved with this community. He leads, like, a local... Boy Scout Catholic, you know, chapter. And a devoted family man. So Epperson as an adult, you know, has his life together. He's married with his wife, um, who's from, Mary, who's from England. They elope as teenagers, and they're together for the rest of their lives. Um, They have a lot of children. The success Epperson found in his personal life, however, wasn't translating to his professional life. If you go through the historical record in terms of like looking at the newspapers at the time, Frank is in them a lot um, for a lot of different ideas. But he hadn't quite found the thing that would ignite his imagination. He's involved with his family's China business. He's involved with selling real estate. And so he really has a lot going on and seems like he has the mindset of, you know, an entrepreneur. All this time, Epperson never stopped making the frozen ice treat he discovered as a boy for his friends and family. A lot of people, they discover their passion in food as a hobby. It starts off as a hobby and then it kind of escalates into a side gig. Valerie Lomas is a baker and author of Life is What You Bake It. 
And the beauty of a side gig is that you don't have to worry about making it make sense because you're still relying on your full-time job, on your full paycheck, and you have that stability. But what a side gig allows, it allows you to kind of step your toe in and see, hey, is this a product that people like? Is this something that I enjoy doing and that I wanna make a career out of? In 1922, Epperson made a leap of faith. He decided to try to turn his accidental childhood hobby into a product and a business. Adam Richman is a television host and author of Straight Up Tasty. So about 20 years or so go by and Frank Epperson has decided he is gonna go all in and invest his life savings in trying to recreate this delicious treat that he had had as a youth in San Francisco about 15 years, 20 years earlier. But Epperson can't just stick a bunch of glasses of soda out on his porch and wait for a cold night. The state of refrigeration uh, at the time that Frank is, you know, coming up with the idea for the popsicle um, isn't the modern way that we think of it today. Not everyone has access to, you know, freezing and fridge technology and it's still fairly primitive. It would be decades before freezing technology and refrigeration were widely available in America. And so in 1922, if Frank Epperson was going to turn his hobby into a business and mass produce his popsicles, he was going to have to figure out a solution himself. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. While Frank Epperson was experimenting with ice pops and trying to figure out how to freeze them, he had no idea that another young man was trying to come up with a commercial solution to that same problem. In 1912, a field worker for the U.S. Department of Agriculture arrived in Labrador, Canada. Clarence Birdseye was a young biologist and hunter. He was fresh off an assignment capturing wild animals for groundbreaking research. The discovery that ticks spread Rocky Mountain spotted fever. In Canada, Birdseye saw members of the Inuit community, indigenous people of North America, do something amazing, something they had been doing for centuries. He's up there taking a survey of wild birds in Labrador, and he observes the First Nation peoples fishing. Libby O'Connell is a cultural historian and the author of The American Plate. They bring the fish out and it flash freezes because it's so cold. It's immediately frozen. And he discovers that that fish that's been immediately frozen stays good until it's thawed. And it makes him realize, wow, this is the future of food preservation. Birdseye settled in Labrador for a while. While he was there, he continued to observe his Inuit neighbors freezing and storing fish. And he developed technology to recreate what they did freeze the fish rapidly. In 1922, Birdseye established a frozen food company. 
he freezes three vegetables and some and the fish product, and those are the, his main offerings. Clarence Birdseye was in business, and then two years later, he wasn't. Birdseye Seafoods Incorporated went bankrupt because in 1924, hardly anyone was interested in freezing foods. There had been a lot of frozen food around. Clarence Birdseye didn't invent frozen food. Nobody wanted it because it was terrible. Mark Kurlansky is the author of Birdseye, The Adventures of a Curious Man. It was terrible because it was not frozen at a very low temperature and it was frozen very slowly. So it was, <laughs> it was this process where it was kind of rotting as it was freezing. It was terrible, nobody wanted it. And frozen food had a very bad name. Um, but the frozen food that he ate in Labrador, which nobody you know, in the uh, US had, had ever eaten frozen food like that, was really very good. Clarence Birdseye had better technology, but he didn't know how to convince consumers that rapidly freezing fresh food was a superior method. And even if he had been able to convince them, the problem with frozen food was always that nobody had freezers. Stores didn't have freezers. People didn't have freezers in their home. Trucks and trains didn't have freezers for transporting frozen food. There was one man who would have been very eager to try this new product, but he had no way of knowing what Birdseye was up to in Labrador, Canada. Freezing technology this time period, you know, isn't up to what Frank needs to make his popsicles. But Frank Eberson was a resourceful man, and he was determined to figure out how to get his popsicle out to the world. Food writer Shelby Pope. So when he gets the idea to make popsicles at scale, it's up to Frank to come up with the, not just the invention, but the technology to make it. So Epperson began studying a home ice cream maker. They had been popular for decades, ever since chef and inventor Agnes Marshall devised the technology. Libby O'Connell. In the middle of the 19th century, a woman invents the, the paddle inside with the, dash, the dasher. And you have a hand crank that makes it possible for the ice cream to be stirred within a frozen environment. You put um, ice all around this canister, and you salt it because it's the melting point that makes it as cold as possible, and you hand crank an ice cream maker. Epperson removed the paddle and crank from the ice cream maker and used a similar contraption to hold test tubes containing sugary liquid upright as they froze. So Frank has to create this box that will serve as his, you know, popsicle maker. Not only is it, it has to hold all these test tubes where he's putting, you know, the flavors into, it has to be stay cold and do it, make it colder faster than the current technology allows. And so he does that by surrounding these test tubes with um, ice and salt, which freezes this, this mixture at a much quicker time. And it worked. Adam Richman. But it bears noting that Frank Epperson a man who is not a chemist, not a food scientist, not even a chef, is risking everything to create a frozen treat, a mass-marketed, mass-consumed frozen treat for a nation that doesn't have freezers, that doesn't have freezing technology, that doesn't even have frozen aisles yet in their grocery stores while using second-grade chemistry, ice, and salt. 
Epperson also started to experiment with different flavors. Frank was really looking around at the soda fountains that were really big at this time period and seeing, you know, the kind of flavors that were popular then, you know, root beer, cherry, um, and bringing those into his popsicle flavors. Epperson originally called his icicle-like invention the Epsicle. But we have his children to thank for the name we know them as today. And they went from calling it the Epsicle to Pops Icicle, which then became the Popsicle. Now Epperson just had to see if the public would like his Popsicles as much as his family did. And he knew exactly where to start. So Frank and his very supportive wife, Mary, decided to debut the Popsicle in 1922 at a fireman's ball in Alameda. And this is a very high society event. All the firemen are in their dress uniforms. And Frank has the idea to circulate around the room, him and his wife, and just eating Popsicles all night until uh, someone asks like what they are. And one woman uh, you know, says to him, those must be good, I've seen you eat half a dozen this night. And he's like, okay, do you want to try? And they are great. And the woman tries it and says it's delicious. Popsicles were a hit, at least with the firemen. Now Epperson needed to find paying customers, and a lot of them. Amusement parks were big in this time period. And those were where Frank, you know, saw the perfect venue to um, premiere the uh, Popsicle. In the early 1920s, the U.S. economy was recovering from World War I and the Spanish flu. Americans were excited to be out and about again. It was a time when outdoor amusement parks were thriving. You're looking back in time, you're like, okay, it's, it's summer, 1920, where is everybody? Well, they're, they're at Coney Island, or they're at a, a summer street fair, or they're out, they're out doing something in, in the heat. Stella Parks is a chef and food writer, and the author of Brave Tart, Iconic American Desserts. There's so many people outside doing outdoor activities and doing summer things, and they are in desperate need of relief and something to refresh them. The first enclosed amusement park opened in 1895 in Coney Island, Brooklyn. The famous Wonder Wheel, a 150-foot-tall Ferris wheel, was erected there in 1920. And parks got even larger and more elaborate after that. Roller coasters and other thrill rides popped up everywhere. Amusement parks quickly became an outdoor American pastime. They also provided the perfect opportunity for outdoor vendors like Frank Epperson. So Frank starts selling his popsicles out of the back of his Dodge sedan at um, the amusement parks that were really popping up in the Bay Area like they were elsewhere at the time. And one of these is Neptune Beach, which is in Alameda, and it's on the water, and it's this beautiful, um, there's Olympic-sized swimming pools, there's dancing, the entire family, there's vaudeville um, going on. And it's just really just like the place to be at the time. Neptune Beach near San Francisco became known as the Coney Island of the West, and its patrons loved what Frank Epperson was selling. There's something really fun about, you know, frozen novelties and being able to have this like exciting, interesting tree instead of just like another glass of lemonade. This is where the idea of the popsicle becoming, you know, this ideal summer happy beach time treat really, you know, has its origins is people loving it and wanting to buy tons of it at these early amusement parks, especially Neptune Beach, which is on the water. Ice cold frozen treats are ubiquitous now. We can't imagine summer without them. But in the 20s, they were revolutionary. 
So Popsicle at this point is really marketed as, um, you know, not as ice cream. It's a frozen drink on a stick. Um, so it's really tying people into that kind of like soda fountain idea. During the 1920s, soda went from a drink a young kid would mix on his porch to a social experience. It filled a gap left by prohibition. So prohibition goes into effect in 1920, and that really creates this huge uh, boom in the market for ice cream. Um, soda fountains are becoming big. Um, people are looking for a third space to go to that's not, you know, uh, the bar, so and it's replaced with this really family-friendly soda fountain or ice cream parlor. And, you know, in the early 1900s, um, the ice cream sundae is invented at the World's Fair in St. Louis. Um, hot fudge is invented. Um, snow cones are rented ar around this time, so it's really a boom time for ice cream. Americans were looking for new places to go and for new things to try. Beth Kimmerly is the author of Candy, the Sweet History. So because people aren't drinking alcoholic beverages during prohibition, there's really this, this need and this want for not only sweets, but for the effects that some of these candy ingredients give them. Candy producers started getting creative. So you've got, you know, candy folks serving up candy with striped shirts and wild mustaches and doing all sorts of really sort of entertaining things with, with candy drinks. Um, candy beverages, and candy itself. And with frozen sugary treats like popsicles. This increasingly large class of, you know, people looking for um, leisure and kind of more fun things to spend their money on. Um, you know, people have disposable income and they want to send it on, you know, things that their families enjoy, that their kids enjoy, and the popsicle is really the perfect intersection of a lot of these things. Frank Epperson formed the Popsicle Company, later the Popsicle Corporation, in 1923. He also applied for a patent. He called his invention a frozen confectionery and claimed it was a treat that could be conveniently consumed without contamination by contact with the hand in a thoroughly sanitary manner. I think one of the early things that really attracts people to the popsicles, you know, both from a consumer standpoint and from a um, you know marketing standpoint, is the stick. Um, you know because, you know, Frank puts that like, you know, wooden, you know, flat piece of wood in it. Um, he is making it like something that has this, you know, air of cleanliness about it. You don't need a spoon. The U.S. Patent and Trademark Office agreed with Epperson. His popsicles were a new and original product. Up in Canada, Clarence Birdseye wasn't ready to give up on freezing food, despite going bankrupt doing it. Just a year later, he tried again. Mark Kurlansky. He formed this, this company that he very carefully put together with uh, engineers and science people and financial people. He called it the General Seafood Corporation, and those engineers refined and improved the freezing procedure. Birdseye moved his new company down to the U.S., to Gloucester, Massachusetts, a fishing capital. And just like Frank Epperson, Birdseye got a patent for this new technology, and then another and another. You look at his patents, and you see that a lot of his patents are about packaging. And he understood that frozen food couldn't be like the whole side of beef, that it had to be individual or family-sized things in a package. And so he developed all kinds of packaging. He was so successful that just four years later, he sold his new company and those patents, and Clarence Birdseye became a millionaire. 
Frank Epperson did not have such good fortune with his patent. His success peddling popsicles at amusement parks did not translate into other markets. For a while, he tried to get other vendors to sell them. Frank had to drum up business, and so one of his strategies, allegedly, was he had lots of children, he eventually had nine, and he would send a different child to the corner store every day to ask for the popsicle. And um, each day the you know proprietor had to be like, no, we don't have that. And then Frank himself would eventually come in and ask, you know, hey, do you want to start carrying these things? And of course the proprietor would be like, well, I've had so much demand for these. But Frank still struggled to find new customers and make ends meet. Frank in the early, early days is everything himself. Um, so he even hand cuts those flat wooden popsicle sticks himself in his attic with like a woodcutter at the time. And he's using, you know, you know his own, you know, jerry-rigged ice cream machines. Epperson had the help of his wife, Mary, and their children, but it wasn't enough to grow the business. So Frank, you know, knows that if he wants to uh, really make the popsicle a success, he has to team up with some other people. And he has to, you know, team up with people who have the infrastructure, who have the business sense. And so he teams up with um, the Lowe's company, which, um, you know, has experience in like the amusement park space and they have experience doing things on like a national scale. And in 1925, Epperson sold control of the Popsicle Corporation to the Joe Lowe Company of New York, along with his new patent. Frank is not, you know, one to be satisfied with just one thing in his life. And he's still doing real estate at this time period. And, you know, as Popsicle starts to grow, he patents the idea. Um, and then he kind of immediately turns around and sells the patent rights to the Popsicle Company um, because he, you know, needed money and he wanted to work on other things. Epperson came to regret that decision. He later said, I was flat and had to liquidate all my assets. I haven't been the same since. Epperson never reaped the financial rewards of his invention, but he led a happy life in his home of Oakland, California. The rest of Frank's life, he is just a continuation of that, you know, child who had all these great ideas. He never stops inventing. He develops a high quality shampoo that he sells to beauty stores. He uh, comes up with a dictionary with his wife um, where you could look up words phonetically. And he really stays, you know, a part of his community. And he, you know, leads Boy Scout troops and, you know, celebrates 50 years of marriage with his wife and, see, you know, raises nine children. Clarence Birdseye, despite his newfound wealth, kept on working and innovating with the company that bought his patents. He froze a little bit of everything. Within a year, they were selling frozen fish, meat, fruit, and vegetables to stores in Massachusetts. Eventually, the business got a new name, Birdseye Frozen Food Company. It found its market and went national. Bryant Simon is a history professor at Temple University and author of Everything But the Coffee. The initial kind of moment of frozen foods is to make things available that people had never seen at different times of year in different places. Now food isn't confined by geography anymore. That idea of totally exploding space and time is kind of mind-boggling if you really think about it. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Under the new ownership of the Low Company, popsicles started to appear all over the country. The popsicle idea really spreads pretty quickly um, and just... It's by, you know, within its like first couple of years of business, it's already bi-coastal, which is pretty very impressive, you know, and it's really showing the value in this idea that there is this huge demand for, you know, a slightly cheaper, fun, you know, frozen drink on a stick. The first popsicles came in seven flavors and sold for just five cents. Popsicle is a pretty big success. Um, there was one day in Coney Island where allegedly 8,000 were sold in a day. Business was booming, but Popsicle's competitors were also multiplying, and the company was in a constant battle to protect its rights. Patent is one way for entrepreneurs to protect their ideas. Rashid Hassan is an executive in residence at George Mason University's School of Business. And that really helps you to minimize competition, give you some time to uh, speed up your business and, and, and sort of generate the fruits of uh, your labor while you are restraining other people from imitating your um, inventions or ideas. Popsicle is not afraid to sue its competitors to protect its rights. And a lot of time you get into this entanglement with other people, you know, because people have fights over who owns the patent and who came up first. And, you know, as you go back in history, there are many, many cases where things have gotten quite ugly. But one of its rivals in the frozen treat business also had a patent the popsicle, you know, which has this you know, kind of wooden stick that is inserted to contain uh, the popsicle, uh, but the same concept was used in ice cream. And so you have two different companies came together, the Good Humor and the Popsicle, basically suing each other as far as who owns that simple stick you know, in their product. In 1920, an Ohio ice cream and candy maker named Harry Burt had developed a special chocolate to coat ice cream. He froze chocolate-covered ice cream on a stick and called it the Good Humor Bar. Bert was also the first person to sell ice cream from motorized trucks, but it was the stick that won Good Humor its own patent. Now, the big distinction between ice cream and popsicles is the absence of dairy and it being more a flavored water ice as opposed to an ice cream treat. But even though the U.S. government had granted patents to both Good Humor and Popsicle, the two companies each continued to claim ownership of the concept. Maybe it sounds silly, but there are uh, many, many examples of like that. Even, you know, nowadays we know that uh, Apple and Samsung, for example, having fights on some of the patents. And that's, I think, expected because sometimes the inventions are so closely related, overlaps, and where do you draw the line? Now it was Good Humor that sued Popsicle for infringement. After a lengthy legal battle, the two companies settled their differences. They agreed that Good Humor would stick to ice cream on a stick, 
and Popsicle would stick to fruit-flavored water on a stick. Libby O'Connell. And they each have their different products, and they go their merry way. They just draw the line in the sand over who's going to be able to sell what product. Popsicle had survived legal and logistical challenges in the early years of the company. But another potential hurdle to Popsicle's emerging business was just around the corner, the Great Depression. In October 1929, the U.S. stock market cratered. What sort of was the buildup of the 1920s now comes crashing down uh, in the 1930s. David Eisenbach is a historian at Columbia University. We have these images of life in the Great Depression, of people uh, waiting online uh, to get a meal. Uh, and this, they were called bread lines, like you were waiting online to get some bread. You were waiting online to just get a hot bowl of cheap soup. Uh, this was something that uh, was a huge shock to an America coming off the 1920s when things were so readily accessible. The stock market crash had devastating consequences for many American businesses. As soon as it starts coming down, right, that's when you have a fiscal uh, financial crisis, a banking crisis. And the problem with that is that banks don't loan money. If the banks don't loan money, then people can't buy cars, they can't buy houses, businesses can't fund their uh, payrolls. And so the entire system collapses. Most consumer luxuries and treats of the 1920s didn't outlast the crisis. But Popsicle somehow managed to buck the trend. Shelby Pope. The popsicle is like declared like a depression-proof treat because people like keep buying it even as you know people stop buying ice cream um, in the quantities that they did previously. Popsicle survived the depression in part because it was such a simple and affordable treat. Ice cream is also really popular this time, but it's a little more expensive since it depends on you know the price of milk, which fluctuates. Um, but this being just you know fruit juice and ice water, you know, really makes it something that, you know, everyone can enjoy. A popsicle costs five cents for one drink on a stick. Which is a really attractive and accessible price point for a lot of people at the time. Um, it makes it something that, you know, families of all classes can buy their children instead of just, you know, like a high class treat. Popsicle later created the two stick popsicle for struggling families. So two children could share an ice pop for just a nickel. Adam Richmond. I think working-class people didn't have a lot of indulgences, little tiny things that they could add to their life, things they could give to their kids, things their kids could buy to bring them joy and bring them happiness. But when you suddenly have entrepreneurs creating snacks for a penny, creating snacks for three cents or a nickel, I think as a nation, when everybody is able to eat the thing they want, get great joy from the thing they want. I think that's when food is at its best. During the Depression, Popsicle started to push the boundaries of its gentleman's agreement with good humor and its founder, Harry Burt. And once again, Popsicle was back in court. Suddenly, Popsicle tries to get a little too clever for his own good and goes up against the juggernaut of good humor. He creates something called the frozen milk ice. It's actually in a keystone shape, uh, sort of, I guess, a trapezoid, you might say, or a blunted triangle. Covered in chocolate, frozen milk ice that was actually cheaper and larger in size than the good humor bar, thus creating the illusion in the marketplace that it is a cheaper alternative to the good humor bar 
better value and thus not only devaluing the good humor bar, but damaging Mr. Burt's bottom line. Again, the two companies eventually settled out of court. And finally, something happened to benefit both Popsicle and Good Humor. By the 1940s, 85% of Americans had home refrigerators and freezers, the technology Clarence Birdseye helped develop. Out there in America, you go to these supermarkets and they'll have like a couple of aisles, long, big aisles of freezer units. And I look at this and I think, wow, this is what Clarence Birdseye created. And with this new at-home technology, both Popsicle and Good Humor had access to an enormous new consumer market. But the acrimony still existed between the two of them, despite the fact that they had sort of agreed to disagree. Popsicle and Good Humor remained at loggerheads for decades, until 1989. After a series of corporate mergers, both rivals ended up as part of the same parent company, Unilever. Today, Americans spend more than $5 billion a year on ice cream treats. Popsicle is the sixth most popular frozen treat in the nation. There are dozens of different flavors, but the most popular remains one of Frank Epperson's originals, cherry. I think in a way it makes it sort of perfect sense that, you know, an 11 year old creates the Popsicle because it is such a, you know, beloved by children everywhere to this day. And the story of the Popsicle has come to represent more than just that. And it really shows, you know, this very American idea that anyone can do anything. You know, who would thought that, you know, this child, you know, sitting on the steps of his San Francisco home in the early 1900s, you know, create this, what becomes this huge billion dollar, you know, business. Um, that's a really attractive idea. And it's a very, you know, American idea. Like, you know, it all comes down to that spark of invention. I think it just, it takes someone who's visionary to come up with something that has never been done before. Valerie Lomas. And not just to see it and think, hmm, that's never been done before, but to go out and do it and then make a product that they can sell. That's like the definition of an entrepreneur. I think as a kid, I probably had ideas of things that, you know, I thought were wonderful at the time and, you know, would have made life so much simpler. Um, but, you know, they've sort of faded away, which I think happens to a lot of people, um, and which is what, you know, makes Epperson's story so interesting, is that he really was able to maintain that, you know, childhood sense that he, in, you know, joy that he got as a kid from the Popsicle and bring it to this thing today that, you know, brings the same joy to, you know, kids all over. Adam Richman. Well, I don't think anyone says iced pop or frozen ice fruit water confection, we say popsicle. And that, I think, is testament to their enduring popularity. And it's also a testament to Epperson's original genius that a simple frozen treat created over a hundred years ago has become so common that almost every adult can remember having a popsicle on a hot summer day. Like that type of flavor always does remind me of like youth, childhood, summer camp. I think the popsicle has become this really, um, you know, it's like symbol of Americana in a very specific way. It's a symbol of like summer, it's a symbol of fun, it's a symbol of, you know, being a hot day and, you know, being relaxed. Like part of the popsicle's charm is that it's messy. You know, it's dripping down, you know, but you know, it's still on a stick, your tongue's gonna turn blue, but you know, you know, we're all out here still enjoying it. On the next episode of The Food That Built America, the remarkable story behind some of the nation's favorite snack foods, Fritos and Lay's potato chips. 
In the early years of the Great Depression, an enterprising young Texan named Charles Elmer Doolin was on a mission. He was looking for some kind of a food that would be a side dish that would be served with soup or sandwiches. But what he found was even better. This man was frying up what became Fritos, and he tasted them, and he found immediately that he had finally found what he had been looking for. They're salty enough. Toasted corn is still just one of like those classic, universally loved flavors. And as Doolin's Fritos corn chips took the southwestern United States by storm, another snack empire, Lay's potato chips, was rising in the east. Herman Lay is a very, very aggressive, uh, innovative, imaginative businessman. He starts his own potato chip company, then joins this potato chip company, then buys out the people that hired him, then buys out other people to become the number one name in potato chips in America. But is there enough room on the shelves for these two chip empires? There's some drama there. They call it the potato chip wars. Without Charles Elmer Doolin and H.W. Lay, there is no way the snack chip would be what it is today. This episode of the Food That Built America podcast was written and produced by Sean Braswell, LaToya Tools, Cecily Mesa Martinez, and Maeve McGoran. Jesse Katz, Jim Pascarella, and Mary Donahue were executive producers. Sound design by Chris Hoff. Special thanks to McKamey Lynn and Tracy Moran. The Food That Built America was originally produced by Lucky 8 TV for the History Channel. Please make sure to subscribe to the Food That Built America on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. For more great history podcasts, check out History This Week from History or Flashback from Ozzy. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.